Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. Hey, and this is Jonathan Siegley here with Mike Ingersoll for the football podcast. Mike, good to talk to you again, man. Yeah, man. Happy to be on. Sorry I missed last week. Uh, no worries. EJ filled in and got some good conversation about the Virginia Tech game. Unfortunately, Carolina was not able to reproduce the magic that they pulled off back in 09. I mean, that was basically a pretty thorough beatdown that UNC received at the hands of the Hokies. But I wanted to get your comments because talking about the offense, a lot of people on the message board and just, you know, in the sports media as a whole are kind of down on the offense at this point. But you have way more knowledge than most people on how the offensive line and really the offense in general, but focusing on the offensive line, what they're supposed to be doing and how they're playing. So to start this one off, what did you see in the Virginia Tech game that the offensive line was actually executing correctly? Well, they had they had some things that were that were good and worth talking about. And in and every every win there's bad that you can talk about as much as there is good. And in every loss there's good stuff you can talk about as much as there is bad. And there was a lot of bad in this game and there has been for a few weeks and some of that's growing pains. A lot of it's attributable to just depleted numbers, you know, and, and you have a freshman quarterback back there who's, you know, he, he there's, I'm sure there's some things, I'm obviously not on the field with those guys, but I'm sure there's some communication issues right now as he's getting his footing being the starter. With that being said, towards the, uh, it, was, it was during the third quarter, and at this point, Virginia Tech had begun pouring it on pretty, pretty significantly. I mean, I mean it was 35 nothing at halftime, but they put the game virtually completely out of reach uh, about middle of the third quarter. But one of the things that we did well, was running the ball uh, off tackle a little bit. So these are your tight, your tight outside zone plays. Jordan Brown and Michael Carter both got carries, and they both got looks on our tight outside zone plays. So I've talked about this before on the podcast. So you're, a lot of teams call them 16 or 17 or 26 or 27, not your 18 or 19 plays where they're uh, you know, eight or nine holes much wider than the six or seven hole. It's kind of right off the hip of the tackle. We ran a lot of that well in the third quarter. Now, one thing that should be noted is that when we started to have success on that tight outside zone, it wasn't against their backups. It was against their starters. And Virginia Tech's defense hadn't been on the field that much at that point, so they were pretty fresh. This is a positive to look at. It's not just it's not me, you know, dragging everybody into the spin zone here. It's 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 actually something positive to look at because starters when they're on the field play hard. They play like starters. And it doesn't matter what the score is. I at least this is how I approach games. I never let off the gas. When I played and I didn't know anybody that was a fellow starter with me that ever did that either. So I assume Virginia Tech is coached the same way and their starters have the same amount of, at least they take the same pride in the number of snaps that they take in the game. So when we lined up and we were able to, to start running the ball somewhat effectively on them, middle of the third quarter, continued in the fourth quarter, that was encouraging. And then obviously Virginia Tech brought a lot of their backups in and we had more success against their backups, which you would expect, though not as much success as you would expect either. But that was that was something good we ran. We our, our tight outside zone has showed some improvement against Virginia Tech, against their starters, against a very good front front seven. And it has been doing it has been getting better progressively over the last three or four weeks to that specific play call. Now, did you also watch the Virginia game from two weeks ago, Mike? I did. Did the two big runs that Michael Carter had 
I can't recall those specifically off the top of my head, but do you recall if either of those were sprung due to that tight outside zone play that you're just describing? I believe one of them was, and if I'm remembering correctly, it was up the left side, so it would have been a 17. It may have also just been designed as an inside zone that bounced outside. That'll happen sometimes also. But point being, our tackles are doing a good job of sealing the edge and getting a little bit of drive so that so that we have those opportunities, we have those running lanes for our young running backs to hit. And what's also encouraging is that those guys, when the hole is there, more often than not, they are seeing it. So, you know, it's it, the, the tight outside zone has become a, a bright light in an otherwise, I'm not going to call it abysmal, but a, a dimly lit offense in terms of production right now. Yeah, and I mean, Coach Fedora has even mentioned that it's just not at the level that UNC and the coaches demand how the offense is playing right now. I mean, he's been very upfront about that. So with that in mind, what's something that you have seen the offensive line that you think they could really improve upon? Well, that's the right way to phrase that question, too. It's not what are they doing bad. It's what can they do to improve upon? Because, you know, in terms of our starters on the offensive line, if you're a starter at the Division One level, I don't care if you're in there because of injury. I don't care if you're in there because you won the job. You're in there because you can play, and the team feels like they can win with you. So it's not so much sometimes what you're doing poorly. It's just what can you do to get better because you do it well. Most guys do everything well at least once. They do some things really good all the time consistently, and that's what they're, quote, really good at. And then there's some other things that they did well in the past they don't do well on all the time that they struggle with with consistency. Those are the things they can improve upon. But every offensive lineman that is a starter in the, at the Division One level on every team has shown flashes of being able to execute every play in the playbook, every blocking scheme, and every assignment the way that it's drawn up and the way that it's intended. So with that being said, twist work. And those of you who watched the film room to the field videos that we did, we did some of this, I believe, with one of the days we had Brian Chacos out there. We worked some twist games. I think EJ was out there with us also. And, and how to best handle twists. It's not really an issue with our tackles right now where I'm seeing the problem is on the inside. So our center and two guards are having trouble with those inside twists. I saw us get beat one time on a very simple TT twist. So the defensive tackles twisting, it, it was the three technique over the right guard, crashed down inside pretty hard. And then the backside nose, so the backside shade looped back around. And what happened was our right guard got his head buried down in that hard inside move. And it was a good job by the three technique because he sold the pass rush. It looked like he was just making an inside move. It didn't look like a design twist. And that's one of the things that Virginia Tech historically has always been very good at is movement up front. Bud Foster loves throwing twists in when he, has, when he also runs a blitz from the linebacker or secondary spots. So what they'll do is they'll twist their defensive line and then blitz somebody else, and it's a real funky look. But what you have to understand with that is that everything is all about gap, inte- gap integrity. So there's always going to be a body against Virginia Tech. There's always going to be a body in the gap where there should be a body. They might look weird. They might get there in an interesting configuration. And that's what Bud Foster is really good at is creating confusion amongst the blockers as to where's the guy going to come from that's supposed to fill this gap. And then all, when you think there's not going to be someone there, you go ahead and abandon that gap, you know, that gap responsibility, and you just take the guy in front of you, and that's when somebody loops around or a, a linebacker green dogs or blitzes just delayed. Virginia Tech has always done that very well. They did it very well against Carolina. They've done it well against us historically. And the one problem we're going to have is 
because they had success against us this week, we're going to continue to see it. It was something that we shut down against Louisville, something we shut down against Cal, and even against Duke for the most part. So we hadn't seen that much movement from defensive lines up till Virginia Tech, and they're, and they're always going to do it. It doesn't matter whether they see it in film study or not. That's just a staple of their defensive scheme is that, that defensive line movement and those defensive line games. They're going to do that every week against every team. It doesn't matter. The problem is because Virginia Tech beat us so pretty consistently on those defensive line games, we're going to keep seeing that until we solve it. So until we get our technique down on these, especially TT twists, because the inside guys are the ones struggling the most with it right now, until we get the technique down on that, we're going to have issues. And the easiest way to solve that is just to keep your head out of it. Don't get fooled by a really good inside move that looks like just an inside move pass rush, not a design twist. Keep your head out of it. Keep separation if you're a guard and keep your hips square to the line and just trust that when that guy leaves, so when you're when the guy lined up across from you stunts inside or outside, when he we call that leaving, when he leaves, somebody's going to replace him. And don't, you know, just don't biggest thing is don't get your head buried down in there. You want to keep separation and keep your head back and your shoulders back so you can see what's going on in front of you. And then you want to stay square because if you close that hip, meaning if you turn your shoulders one way, so if your guy goes inside and I'm playing right guard and I turn my shoulders all the way to the left sideline, right? Even if I see what's going on, I'm not going to be able to flip my right hip back around, open up and get the looper. If there is one, he's just going to beat me. So we just have to get our technique down on that front. And that's something that's easily correctable. And we have guys in there that have played a lot of football and they will. RJ Prince has done some really good things this year. He's corrected a lot of stuff from last year. He's even corrected mistakes he made early in this season. I've seen in games. So even though I, I saw him struggle once or twice on that inside twist game, I know he'll he'll get that corrected because he's a senior and he's playing like one in terms of his development and being able to solve his own problems. Now, as far as the other guys, Cam Dillard and whoever we have in there, Polino or Khalil playing uh, left guard, you know, they, they've got to get that worked out amongst themselves. But, you know, in terms of our inside guys, RJ is not somebody I'm worried about. So I would look to have a see us get that corrected coming into this week, because if not, we're going to keep seeing it. It's going to keep beating us. So just one real quick follow-up, Mike. Is communication also something that is key against defending those twists? I mean, I'd imagine that the two guards at least have to trust each other that they're both moving in tandem when that happens. It is, and and the person who really controls inside twists, especially if you have two, three techniques, so both guards have somebody lined up on their outside shoulder and those three techniques twist, that happens a lot. Also a staple of a Bud Foster defense. Also, it's something LSU likes to do a lot, or at least used to. The center is the one who controls those inside twists. He's the one that communicates because he's able to snap and get back. And really the center's job, especially when you have a pair of threes like that, or maybe a pair of shades, or or sorry, not a pair of shades, pair of uh, G techniques, two eyes, so inside shoulder of the guards. If the center is uncovered in that situation, his job is to snap the ball and get back and get depth so that he can start sipping it out. And then it's the center's job to communicate to the proper guy what's going on. And all that stuff gets solved in practice during the week. And it's a result of film study because you know what's going to be brought in certain situations. You know what twists they're going to run when their defense alignment are lined up a certain way, when they have a certain hand down, a certain lean in their stance. That's all film study. That's all understanding tendencies. So that stuff gets corrected during the week. It's only when you haven't seen it before that it should beat you in a game on Saturday. And we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, we're going to discuss the upcoming Miami game. And then Carolina playing Miami this Saturday. I doubt that Carolina is going to see the same complexity that they faced against 
Virginia Tech because Bud Foster, he's just one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. Miami, though, may not have that same level of coordinator, but I do believe they have a different level of athlete at the positions. So, you know, Carolina should be prepared for that because Miami, as you said, if they saw Virginia Tech get success, they will probably try to replicate that when they come into Keenan on Saturday. Well, that's absolutely correct. And you actually, you actually took the line that I was going to use. No, they're not going to see the same level of complexity, they're gonna, but they are going to see a more advanced athlete. Miami, Mark Richt has done a great job of developing their defensive line. I think they've got I, – I honestly think Miami has the best linebacking core in the country, and they're all crazy young. I think most of them, if not all three, are sophomores. I think between Quarterman and the other two that they have, I think those are probably going to end up being the best linebackers in the country. I think they've got three first-rounders right there when it's time for them to come out of the draft. In terms of defensive linemen, they've got number seven defensive tackle. He wreaks a lot of havoc in there. He's a very good player. He's very active with his hands. He's a big body, and he's really, really quick on his feet for that size. He looks a lot like a Grady Jarrett, played at Clemson, who's now with the Falcons. Looks like a heavier Tank Carradine. He used to play at Florida State back when they won a national championship. So they've got real talent down there. But what they are, you know, Carolina is going to see a lot of movement because what Miami is going to do is they're going to copy Virginia Tech. Division One football is a copycat league. And like I just said, you know, a few minutes ago, you know, because Carolina got beat so badly on it last week and somewhat, you know, weeks leading up to that, they're just going to keep doing it because they know it works against us. They're going to keep doing it until we stop it. And then once we stop it, they'll have a plan for that too. But at least we'll put a stopper in that league in terms of defensive line games. So, you know, they will see a better athlete. And unfortunately, with those better athletes, they're going to see a lot of twists too. But again, if they focus on it this week in practice and they get it corrected, it won't be a problem. Carolina's going to definitely have their hands full, but it's all about making small gains at this point. I mean, the season is not what Carolina fans or the team especially, even more than the fans, wanted to have happen. So at this point, I believe it just comes down to making small victories, small gains, and try to finish this out on a high note. And then talking about the expectations, though, Mike, and we'll go ahead and wrap this one up after this, fan angst is pretty high right now. We've seen you know our fair share of people calling for maybe some staff changes, I've seen some people really try to say we should get some changes even at the top, talking about Coach Fedora. To me, I think that's incredibly premature. As our Inside Carolina leader, Buck Sanders, wrote about in his excellent column yesterday on Tuesday, you know, there's just no evidence that the actual people in power at Carolina or you know, amongst these powers that be, the people with the purse strings, that that's even in the realm of possibility at, at this point. So you've also been through some seasons where, you know, the expectations weren't really met and you were on campus when there was the coaching change between Bunting and Butch Davis, correct? Yes, I was. So go ahead and talk with us about that, having, having been on the team when that happens and just addressing that situation. Well, the, the fire fedora talk is a little, like you said, it's premature. It's also irrational, and it's irrational for two reasons. Number one, there's financial considerations. His buyout is enormous, and nobody's going to shell out that money right now at Carolina to buy him out because, one, why would they pay that much money when they could keep him here and get value for the next couple of years? And then if it doesn't look like the program is, is heading in the direction they want it to, you know, then the, you know, the amorphous powers that be you know, go ahead and pull the trigger on on him then for a much, much lower buyout. 
So there's that. There's also consideration number two, which is what is that going to do to the program? What's that going to do to the team? Turnover and coaching staffs is not good, especially from the head coach. Uh, coordinators can come and go. Position coaches can come and go. And and those those guys, the transition between position coaches is a little bit easier than the transition between head coaches. And the reason that is is because stability is very, very important for a college football program. It's something that Carolina hasn't had a whole lot of in recent memory, really ever. We haven't had many coaches last longer than 10 years. I think it was Torbush, the only coach we had over last over 10 years. I want somebody to look into that. I don't even know if Torbush made it 10 full years. But that type of turnover doesn't lend itself to success on the field or, or to creating or fostering a successful winning culture in a program. What you have to ask yourself is, as a fan, one, what do you think this is? You know, we're not Alabama. Nick Saban ain't coming here regardless. There's programs out there like LSU with Ed Orgeron right now where they can't – Ed is a good – he's a good coach, and he does a great job when he's an interim head coach. As a full-time head coach, he doesn't – he just hasn't had a whole lot of success. LSU is doing a little bit better right now, but the wheels are going to fall off that eventually. LSU should be able to hire anybody they want, and they can you know, Michigan. Michigan couldn't get the right guy in there after Lloyd Carr until they found Jim Harbaugh. And honestly, Harbaugh is having some struggles right now. You know, so there's these major programs around the country that should be able, you know, Florida, another one, Jim McElwain, great guy. I'm sure they won a couple of games, but they don't look like the Urban Meyer, Florida. They don't look like the Steve Spurrier, Florida. You know, there's programs everywhere that should be able to hire big name coaches and they can't. And these are storied programs with, with histories. Who are we going to get to replace Larry? If we do happen to get, say, hypothetically, we didn't have the buyout issue and we, we got rid of him this year, who's, who, who are we going to get? Who's out there on the market? Who's going to come to Chapel Hill over one of those other programs if one of those jobs come open? Who's coming to Carolina over Tennessee right now? I mean, let's be realistic. That's not something that we've had. That's not an advantage we've had in the past where we are the coveted coaching location. We're not Southern Cal. You know, with Lane Kiffin, we're, that's, not, that's not who we are. Coaches aren't clamoring to come to come be the head coach here. That it also doesn't mean coaches don't want to be the head coach here. But if it's on a list of ten schools and seven of them are SEC powers and two of them are Pac twelve powers or Big Ten powers and then we're number ten, they're gonna get more attention numbers one through nine before they get to us. And that's just how it works. So so there's that. Who are we gonna get? Number two is what's it gonna do to the players? Turnover is bad with position coaches. I, I talked about this a second ago. Let me, let me circle back around to it. It's bad with position coaches because you develop a camaraderie and a rapport with your position coach. You learn his techniques. You learn, you, know, you learn him as a person. You develop a relationship with him, and then he's gone one day, and that's tough to deal with. But the rest of the coaching staff is usually still there. When there's head coach turnover, the entire staff goes, the entire, cult, the entire program goes. A new guy comes in, he brings in, his new, he brings in new coaching staff, new strength staff, new kitchen staff, new football administration. Okay, Everybody's going to be new in that building. He brings in a new culture. He has to implement that culture. You either will or will not buy into that culture based on whether or not you buy, you know, you're picking up what he's putting down. That's a scary, stressful time for players. And a new coach spends more time in the offseason evaluating what he has in the room, just trying to figure out the talent he has on the field or on his roster, then he's able to do with game planning and getting those guys ready because he just doesn't, he doesn't know any of the players. He has no personal relationship with them. He didn't recruit any of them. So turnover is scary and it's, it's certainly not ideal. So this, 
in college football, we have this win now or get fired culture. And what you're seeing is a lot of programs are struggling. Florida is a perfect example. South Carolina is a good example. Georgia, before they got Kirby Smart, you know, Mark Richt won 10 some odd games every single year and fans got fed up with him and fired him. Well, how good was Kirby Smart's first year? They look good now, but Georgia wasn't all that great last year, you know, and, and that's because he had to bring in a new staff and had to bring in a new culture and guys had to buy in. And there's, there's a huge learning curve with all that. And frankly, it's just, it's toxic for players. So the fire Fedora crowd needs to go ahead and chill out and come back to reality and look at all the things at play. There's a massive buyout at play. There's considerations as far as what's it going to do to the team? What's it going to do to the players? Is it in their best interests to get a new coach? And I got into this the other day with somebody on Twitter. You know, what's what? What are we talking about here? Getting rid of Coach Fedora after one bad season when he's got how? What is it? Something like at one point, nineteen guys were out for the year. The entire ACC had twenty-four total combined outside of Carolina. So we made up something like seventy percent of all the injuries, all the all the season-ending injuries in the entire conference. We're going to nix him over one bad year and a string of good years. And then people come at me, well, what about, you know, losing to Duke and losing to State with superior talent and this, that, and the other, and number two draft pick. And yeah, okay, what's your definition of good? Because great is the 10 or 12 teams at the end of the season who win 10 or more games. Out of 120-something, roughly 120 Division One programs, roughly 10% of them will win 10 or more games. They will objectively have had a great season subjectively maybe you're in that fan base and they should have won 12 games whatever objectively 10 wins in college football these days is a really good season it's a great season then you have your nine to nine and eight win teams those are good teams those had they had good seasons objectively subjectively maybe they should have beat a duke or an nc state if they're carolina last year right or if they're miami maybe they're supposed to win more games because they got more talent last year well, objectively, they had good they had good seasons. So we're going to go ahead and get rid of a guy after having a string of really good seasons because he caught one dose of really bad luck for one year. Let's be realistic, everybody. You know, this is Chapel Hill. It's not Tuscaloosa. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Ann Arbor, and it's not Columbus, Ohio. It's not even Gainesville, Florida. So let's stick with the guy who got us here. He's had success, more success than coaches before him. And I see no reason why that's not going to continue in the future. Call the season what it is. It's injury plagued and it's kind of a kook. So that's my two cents on that. So real quick, you mentioned coaches that have lasted more than 10 years at Carolina. The number is exactly three, Dooley, Crum, and Mac Brown. So you're talking about over 34 total coaches that Carolina has ever had. Three of them, less than 10%, have lasted more than 10 years. So answer to that question. But for everything else, Mike, I completely agree. Again, I think Buck Sanders has been nailing this one with his columns. And I think it's going to be just a tremendous coaching job if Coach Fedora can keep this team motivated and playing hard, which to their absolute credit, they have been playing hard. So I hope to see that continue. And, you know, this team may surprise someone. Maybe they can pull off the big-time upset that no one expects. If they keep on giving their all on the field, and EJ last week, he made that point that, look, the defense is still, they are playing their hearts out. The offense is trying. 
if they can just get some lucky breaks, they really gel together. This team could surprise somebody over these next few weeks. Well, they may be laying eggs, but they certainly aren't laying down. And you want to see the value of your coach and your coaching staff? Look at that. Look at the record. Look at the margin of loss. And then watch the effort on the field. And despite all that, you're right and EJ was right. Despite all of that, despite the massive margin of loss and despite the really abysmal record, those guys play hard and they, and they are prepared every week. It's just an execution issue. They're out there to win games and none of them are going into any of these games thinking they're going to lose. They intend to win every game they play. It just obviously hasn't happened that way. So yep. that shows you the value of your coaching staff also. Absolutely. All right, Mike. Well, hey, thanks again, man. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. For everyone else to check out those columns I mentioned by Buck Sanders, you can read them on the Inside Carolina Tar Pit Premium Message Board. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.